0: Revelation 21, uh, starting in verse 9. We are nearing the end of our study of Revelation. And we have this long passage, this long context that we're looking at. John is describing what Christian forever looks like. At least as much as he's able to glimpse through the vision that the angel is showing him. And as John unfolds the scene for us, we cannot imagine for a moment that he's just sort of neutrally taking notes and looking at all of these images like a dutiful reporter to convey it to us. John is overwhelmed and profoundly moved by the scene that he describes. And we saw this last week that sometimes he seems to struggle to put it into words. What he sees is that crown jewel of the new heaven and the new earth, the central feature of this eternal country. And that is a city, a holy city, New Jerusalem. And in this passage, John describes this city. The scene is so overwhelming that when John hears the words of the angel who guides him and sees the beauty and the glory of the eternal place, in verse 8 of chapter 22, we won't get there today, he, he literally falls down and worships the messenger who says, don't do that. <laughs> Worship God only. But he's so overwhelmed And I was thinking, I was preparing this week, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could actually see what John saw and hear what John heard? We will someday, if we know the Lord, if we're bound for the promised land. But for now, we can pray that the Lord will give us eyes of faith to see through these inspired words, by means of these inspired words, what great things the Lord has for those who love him. Because... We are not given this passage simply to be amazed at what lies in stores for a believer in Christ. This vision is being relayed to us as the Lord's instruction that He might prepare us spiritually to live on the new earth. And that is really the most important thing. And as you, we read this this morning, there's a lot of detail here, and I'm, I'm afraid it's going to take us a little longer than usual to get through it. I'm just warning you. Uh, There's a lot going on here. We can't just look at it as something that satisfies our curiosity. He is trying to shape how we think about this eternity so that it has fruit in our lives on this earth now. So let's begin again by reading the text, beginning at verse 9, all the way through chapter 22, uh, verse 5. John says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, And spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates And at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the East three gates, on the North three gates, on the South three gates and on the West three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, well, the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth if any of you knows that I'm mispronouncing some of those, see me afterwards, okay? And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. But its light will be, by its light the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable. Or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. The Lord gives us these words because he desires us to have hope for the future. That is why he appears to John, right? To bolster the faith and confidence of the faithful ones as they live in a hostile, fallen world, unfriendly to the Christ that they embrace. We see that at the beginning of chapter one of Revelation. He desires that we know what we see here is not the end of our faith. What we we see in the world is not the end of our faith, but it's a passing shadow that will one day unveil a greater reality. But that's not the only reason the Lord reveals these coming wonders. He also shows us this new world because He wants us to long for it. And in longing for it, that we might think and behave as those who already belong there. It is not unlike a young man and a young woman who are anticipating their wedding day. There were so many people from Gateway at the wedding yesterday. I I was like, well, we should have had church while we were here. Uh, A lot of you were in Clemson to witness the union of Caleb Green and Hannah Davis as they became husband and wife. And they didn't just show up at University Baptist Church yesterday out of the blue, meet each other, and decide on a whim to get married. Of course not. There was this long anticipation of that day. First, there was interest, then companionship, and a period of getting to know one another and seeking God's will, and eventually they're convinced that God wants them to become husband and wife. Hannah said that it was on Valentine's Day this year that they decided, let's go ahead and get married. And what followed, that was a time of anticipation, formal engagement, preparation, a lot of preparation this last week as people were hurrying to get ready for this wedding, and there was this longing for that day. It consumed them and controlled their thoughts and feelings and actions. But imagine how different the situation would have been if there had been a day sometime after their engagement when Hannah would have said to Caleb, am I going to see you tonight? And Caleb would say, no, I'm going to go out with an old friend of mine. She's in town for a few days. And Hannah would not think that's very funny. Caleb can joke around sometimes, but Hannah would probably think that's not very funny. She... Who's your friend? Oh, just an old girlfriend from high school. We're going to go grab coffee and catch up. None of us would want to be in Caleb's position at that moment. (laughs) Hannah would not and should not accept that. But what if Caleb said, what are you getting so upset about? It's just coffee. Yeah, but you're engaged to me. (laughs) Well, what does that have to do with anything? We're not married yet. Do you see a ring on this finger? Now, All of us know that is terribly wrong, (laughs) and that would not happen. Of course, Caleb is not going to go on a date with an old girlfriend because he is going to marry Hannah. And even though they're not yet married, they haven't become husband and wife. Their future union as husband and wife are already sealed by a unique commitment to each other in the present a commitment that governs their words and thoughts and actions in anticipation of that day. So, brothers and sisters, we are living in this engagement period with respect to the Lord Jesus Christ as we anticipate this immediate face-to-face, the text says, ultimate union with Him because of this new eternal life that John describes for us that we will experience at the climax of our redemption with Christ. We govern our words and our actions now. The divine truth about our future should have immediate sanctifying impact on our lives today. The Apostle Paul talks about this very thing using the same metaphor of an engaged couple. He tells the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 11, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And Paul speaks of himself as the father of the Corinthian church. He does that in 1 Corinthians as well, because he introduced them to Christ. He brought them to faith in Christ. He planted the church there in Corinth. He, the church sort of became Paul's daughter, and he was their father. And now he has betrothed his daughter, to Christ. And as the father in that culture, you had to protect your daughter. The daughter would stay in the father's house for a year before the marriage to make sure she was pure. And finally, there would be this great procession and the father would present the daughter to the husband. So Paul says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, is this the way that the Lord thinks about his people in the book of Revelation? Is he jealous over them? Is he revealing to them through John, his apostle, all of these marvelous realities of their future simply to encourage them to keep on keeping on? Or does he really expect these words to impact what they think and and how they live in the present, how they behave? I think it's very obvious that he wants to encourage them and he wants them to be faithful as his betrothed bride. And we need only to go back to the opening chapters of the book to see this. Jesus gives a specific word of exhortation to each of these seven churches to whom this revelation is specifically addressed. In fact, it struck me when we were going through uh, Revelation 2 and 3, I don't know, 20 years ago uh, in, in this series, that you know uh, th- these churches are going through a level of persecution you and I know nothing about. Yet Jesus is really intense with them. This is not right. You need to take care of this in your life. I'm reading this thinking, well, give them a break. I mean, somebody died in their church because of persecution and they've got all this this stuff coming. But but God knows our only joy is going to be if we're following him in faithfulness. And so the Lord goes after that as well. He wants our encouragement and he wants our faithfulness. In the seven specific messages we see in Revelation 2 and 3, you need need to turn there. I'm going to show you a couple of them on, on the screen here but they're tailored to each individual church. And Jesus sometimes rebukes them for their sin. He warns them what's going to happen if they don't repent, but he also commends their good works. And it's evident he wants them to press on and that they faithfully follow him unto the end, even if it means their lives are given in death for him. They are conquerors, he says. For example, he tells the Ephesian church that if they conquer by returning to their initial love and zeal for him, that they will eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We just read about that in chapter 22. And he promises the persecuted church at Smyrna that their faithfulness now will be rewarded with the crown of life, and they will not be hurt by the second death, which is the lake of fire. And in chapter three, look at what he says to the Philadelphian church after commending them for their patient endurance in the face of persecution and doctrinal attack. He says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, which I think is a reference to the millennial temple. But then he says, never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. You see, again and again in these chapters, Jesus challenges these churches with things like don't follow false teaching, Uh, don't cave to the world's pleasures and godless agenda." strengthen the spiritual life you have, keep your garments pure, fellowship with me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's not a call for salvation. It's a call for the church to be in fellowship with the Lord who gave his blood for them and encourage them to be conquerors, to remain faithful to him no matter what he holds out for them in their lives because eventually unspeakable joy and glory will come to them. When the wedding day finally arrives, when they are finally united with their Lord on the new earth, with this new Jerusalem, therefore Jesus expects us, his people, his bride, to long for our final union with him in such a way that it sanctifies us, it makes us holy by God's grace and through the Spirit. Our thoughts and words and behavior become more like Christ. So, as we read this marvelous description of our ultimate homeland, let's keep what God wants for us in mind. We began to consider this great text a couple of weeks ago, and I pointed out to you that in this passage, we actually see the holy city described in three different ways. Jerusalem, this holy city, each description aligns with something God desires for us now that He will bring to an ultimate conclusion then. God is preparing us on this earth to finally live in that one. But what are these three descriptions? We already looked at the first one, and it is the New Jerusalem as the Lamb's Bride. and You caught that really easily at the beginning of this passage. John is taken to a high mountain so he can get a good look at this dazzling city coming down out of heaven to situate on the earth. And I can't take time to go into the detail that we saw when we walked through that part of the text. But the idea of the bride and the husband signifies that the city represents that place where we will be united with God in the lamb in eternal oneness, eternal community. This new Jerusalem called the bride and the wife is adorned in a way that represents and celebrates the union of the Lord with his people. The gates and the foundations inscribed respectively with the names of the 12 tribes and the names of the 12 apostles speak of our eternal communion, not only with God and the lamb, but also with all of the saints from all time that have come to salvation because of what Christ has done. And the Lord is showing us this great image so that while we anticipate this great union that will be realized then, we might be encouraged to seek fellowship with the Lord now. We're going to meet Him someday. What is that going day going to be like? Is it going to be like we're meeting somebody from the first time? Or somebody that we know pretty well? We need to prepare for that by knowing our Lord now, and He's given us the, the, the means through prayer and the Scripture and the Spirit to do that. But moving on from the New Jerusalem as the Lamb's Bride, we also see New Jerusalem as the most holy place. And that is where we're going to focus our time this morning. The way that the most holy place has been learned by many of you probably is by the name Holy of Holies. That's what it says in the King James Version. A lot of you grew up memorizing. You know the Holy of Holies. This is the room in the tabernacle and later the temple, that someone probably told you once that when the high priest had to go into this room once a year, he had a rope tied around his ankle and bells tied to the hems of his robe. And that way, if he sinned when he was in the holy presence of God in the Holy of Holies and God killed him, the bells would go off and they'd know he's dead and they can pull him out uh, by the rope on his ankle. I hope you know by now that this never happened. This is a made-up story. I feel like I'm telling some of you there's no Santa Claus. Uh, and uh, you know, so I'm sorry to be the, the bearer of bad news, but it showed that people were thinking, wow, this is a pretty serious thing to come into the presence of God. This, this holy of holies, this most holy place was part of the inner tabernacle. Later, the temple that Solomon built, it was the place God chose to manifest his presence on the earth. It's the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. This is the place where once a year and and once a year only on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the high priest was allowed to enter this most holy place and pray for the people and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the Ark, the mercy seat, which is located on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It's important to know the geography of the tabernacle and the temple to understand the full implications of what we're seeing here in this text in Revelation 21. God himself gave the blueprint for this tabernacle. He gave it to Moses when Moses was on the mountain receiving the law. Moses Moses didn't make this up. People didn't make this up. God gave them the tabernacle. It was the command of God. He wanted to create a sacred space, where he could express his presence among his people and they could learn to draw near him in holiness. This is an image of the tabernacle built in the wilderness where the tent in the middle is cut away. It didn't actually look like this. You you just saw a tent. In fact, most of the people of Israel lived and died with never seeing inside this tent. But it's cut away there so you can kind of see what's inside. The tabernacle consisted of an outer courtyard where people could bring in their sacrifices in order to come before their God. And that's why the altar of sacrifice that you see there, I circled it, uh, it that's, that's where people enter. And, and when they go in there, they offer their, their offerings on that altar. And that's what's giving them the privilege of being able to be there and approach God. You bring a sacrifice for your sin because God is holy. You've got to get rid of your sins ceremonially to be there. And you couldn't even just bring the sacrifice yourself. You had to have a priest help you who actually made the sacrifice before you. There's a lot of distance between God and the people because God had commanded only these priests could serve in his tabernacle. They were specifically chosen by God and consecrated, made holy specifically to be able to serve him in that way. They were set apart for this service. But the tent in the back of the tabernacle is the tabernacle proper. It was called the holy place and only the priests could enter there to place the consecrated loaves of bread on the table or to offer incense to the Lord. But the holy place actually had two compartments. In back of the holy place was the most holy place or the holy of holies as many of us learned it. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, which you can see barely there in the drawing. This is the very place where God's presence was seen. You know, when you're reading the Old Testament and you read about the cloud of glory coming down onto the tabernacle or the temple, this is the locus of that glory. It's, it's right here above uh, the Ark of the covenant. And to enter into this compartment was, as it were, entering into God's holy presence. Later, when Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, he copied the tabernacle instructions. Only he enlarged all of the dimensions, made it a larger scale. He doubled the cubits, built the compartments with marble and gold and the finest wood. And of course, this is a cutaway image again, so you can see what's inside. Solomon constructed a magnificent holy place in which he placed the ark. Now, why do I say that this city coming down from heaven is a representation of, a description of the most holy place? Why is it styled like the holy of holies? There are several reasons that I'm going to go through over the next several minutes. First, I want you to notice the dimensions of this new Jerusalem. I'm going to show you that the dimensions of the new Jerusalem correspond with the dimensions of this most holy place. When God gave the instructions to Moses to build the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, uh, Exodus 26 requires that the holy place be built as a long rectangle structure. Actually, the instructions at Exodus 26 are a little too complicated for us to take time with this morning, but the instructions indicate that the holy place was 30 cubits long and 10 cubits wide and 10 cubits high. But the most holy place was to be one third of that space. That means that the holy of holies was 10 by 10 by 10, a perfect cube representing the perfect holiness of God. Likewise, the temple that Solomon built was constructed so that the most holy place was a perfect cube. In fact, we can read 1 Kings 6, which says, the inner sanctuary, that's the most holy place, Solomon prepared in the innermost part of the house, in the innermost part of the temple to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. A perfect cube, only with double the dimensions. And he overlaid it with pure gold. So not only did he double the dimensions of the tabernacle, he doubled the beauty and splendor of the tabernacle. He also overlaid an altar of cedar, Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. He overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. He went crazy with gold, gold, everything overlaid in this temple. So when we come to Revelation 21, 15, John says, the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold, did, did you, I mean, you know the passage already, so you, you might not pay attention to certain things, but I wouldn't have expected this, that the angel shown him the city, and he's like, okay, I got a measuring rod here. Let's go measure, okay? All right, that's kind of random, but let's do it, all right? So that he's, he's shown him a measuring rod of gold. He's gonna measure the city, and it's gay. This actually uh, is the same thing the angel does in Ezekiel, if we go back there, but that's way too long to go back and look at that passage. So uh, go back and read that uh, sometime this week, uh, measuring the tabernacle and, and so forth. But why would he want to measure the city? Why would he care about the dimensions? Because what Jadon discovers is that the city lies four square. That's what it says in verse 16. It's a cube. Its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. That means it's 12,000 on all sides. 12,000 stadia, that's an eighth of a mile, or about 185 meters. And if a cubit is roughly 47 centimeters, the dimensions of this city are 411 cubits on all sides times 12,000. So the wilderness tabernacle, 10 cubits on all sides. Solomon's glorious temple, the Holy of Holies, 20 cubits on all sides. The new Jerusalem, nearly 5 million cubits on all sides. That's about 1,500 miles, by the way. That's like as the crow flies from Miami to the Upper Peninsula, or from where we are right now, 100 miles past Denver. That's how long that is. And as breathtaking as the expansion of the measurements are, so the expansion of the beauty of the city is... Solomon's temple, as magnificent as it was, was only a shadow of this new city. Notice I'm not saying it was a shadow of this new temple because remember down in verse 22, John says, I saw no temple in the city. It's like he was expecting it. I saw no temple. I would expect a temple. It's new Jerusalem. Where's the temple? He says, its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. God is actually there this time. In that city, we don't need a temple representing his presence. His presence is actually there. The temple was the physical place on earth where God's people could enter a shadow of God's actual presence. I mean, God manifested his presence gloriously at times, but the temple was like a window to God. But now that God is truly and immediately present, there is no longer a need for a temple. The city itself represents that temple because it is the throne of God and of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus. If I could put it this way, in the Old Testament, God's people entered the most holy place only through a priest from the outside. But on the new earth, all of God's people may dwell in this holy place. The place that God's people were actually, uh, the, the, the place of the temple on earth was God actually keeping His people at arm's length from Him, the holy place that only one person a year, one consecrated person a year could enter into, now becomes the place where all holy people can live. So that's one of the things that we see here, which points us to this ultimate holy place place. Now, there are several other features of the city that depict it as the most holy place. So we're just getting started, but I want to hurry along through these. So just really listen fast as I go through some of these. In verse 17, the angel measures the wall of the city. Notice what it says there. 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's Measurement. Now, I want to go into unnecessary detail, but John seems to be saying simply that the angel was using the same measurement that any person would have used in John's day. The cubit was the measurement from your elbow to your fingertips. You know, they didn't all have measuring rods there, so they would just go from the, the fingertips to the elbow, which uh, was typically about 18 inches, I've read. I've, I measured my cubit yesterday. You put your arm on the wall and just mark with pencil down here and up there. Rena, that's why there's pencil mark on the wall, by the way. I, didn't, I, didn't, I forgot to erase that. Um, but uh, my cubit is actually like 18 and a half inches, so I'm a little bigger than the, than the standard cubit. Um, but that was the standard back then, about 18 inches. So John is saying that the angel was not using some angelic distance, but he's using the same cubit we would expect. And I think that's significant. Because a lot of people try to say that all these dimensions, they're, they're merely symbolic. In other words, they don't really mean anything literal. They're all just about some image or some, some notion we're supposed to have. I, I don't know why the measurements can't be literal and symbolic at the same time. Although this wall that the angel measures is probably not 144,000 cubits high, because that would be out of proportion given the dimensions of the city. And back in verse 12, it already says it had a very high wall. It's more likely that this wall is 144 cubits thick. It doesn't say what he's measuring there. That would make better sense. That would give it a better proportion. But it should pique our interest that the number of cubits is 144,000. Do you remember that number somewhere in the book of Revelation? Is God trying to call our attention to something here? Because there's another 144,000 spoken of in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14. It's repeated. 12,000 times 12. Believers who are especially sealed by God, marked by God during the tribulation period. There are likely far more than 144,000 who come to faith in Christ during the tribulation period, but these represent a completed number of those who are redeemed. And that is exactly what we find in the city, a completed number of those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, who if they had lived in Old Testament times, would have been kept back from the holy place, which was but a shadow of the place to come. But now they are welcome to come and go as they please into the actual real presence of a holy God. So the first reason this city reminds us of the Holy of Holies is the dimensions of the city that mimics the phenomenal portions Uh, of, of the very dimensions of those given by God in the Old Testament. And the second is this wall that appears to represent the redeemed people who are now welcomed into the city to worship. But there's a third reason that the city reminds us of the most holy place. And that is the materials that are used to construct it. Verse 18 says, The wall was built of jasper. While well, the city was pure gold, like clear glass, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite. the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, uh, the, uh, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. This is a wonderful display of precious stones and rare materials beyond our imagination. And it should remind us of the most holy place constructed by Solomon. We just read that he built that inner sanctuary and overlaid it with pure gold. Well, here there is no overlay of gold. Rather, the entire city itself is pure gold, real gold. Our gold, our purest gold is 24 karat gold. And it is only given to us, I think, that we might have an idea of what real gold is like. Our pure gold is too soft to build a city with. You know that, right? We typically cannot make jewelry out of pure gold because it would stretch and bend and lose its shape over time. Pure gold is very soft, This is a city that is constructed with pure gold and the streets with pure gold like transparent glass. We don't even know what that is like. And these gates, each one a single pearl. You might think, you know, after all these wonderful descriptions of the stones, the gold and all these gems, that a pearl seems kind of random. I mean, why wouldn't it be gold and silver? That seems more precious to us than pearls, doesn't it? But in John's day, pearls were considered the most valued and extravagant of all jewels. There's really a fascinating history. I read some of it yesterday. Fascinating history behind discovery of pearls in the West during the time of Alexander the Great and the rise of their value. And by the time of the Roman Empire, a set of pearl earrings could amount to twice the amount of your inheritance. They were so precious. If the walls are 144 cubits thick, you cannot imagine the size and value of these 12 gates made of one pearl each. So the beauty of the city reminds us of the beauty and extravagance of Solomon's temple. And these 12 kinds of gems, these 12 stones also speak eloquently of the temple. Not only does their value add to the beauty of the city, but these 12 kinds of precious stones are meant to remind us of the 12 stones in the Old Testament that were in the breastplate of the priest of the temple. Most of you are aware that God instructed Israel's priests to have a breastplate that's part of his, his garments. And they had in that breastplate 12 precious stones representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So these 12 tribes were always represented by God. Or I should say, always represented by the priest as he went before God. Now, I'm listing here the names of these precious stones that we're reading here in this passage from the ESV translation In Exodus 28 and 39, we find the list of precious stones that were supposed to adorn the priest's breastplate, where God explains how the breastplate is supposed to be constructed. Now, when you look at these two lists, you realize they don't perfectly align. In fact, I put in italics the gems that are mentioned in Exodus 28 and 39 that are not mentioned here in the list in Revelation 21. You see that? There are three that are different in name. And you wonder why, but then you have to think about the fact that the identification of gems in ancient literature is a very complicated issue. I mean, Revelation is over 1,500 years removed from the book of Exodus, and we're close to 2,000 years removed from Revelation. We're not always certain what gem is being identified in Koine Greek, and we certainly can't understand all the time what gem is being identified in ancient Hebrew. And you can see this when you compare... Other translations. Notice you have three translations here. This is Exodus 28 and 39, the list that is there, the the, the second uh, three columns there. Each of those are the translations of the same Hebrew text. But in the English translation, they don't all agree, the translators don't all agree which gemstone all the time is trying to be identified. Uh, In the first row, for instance, Uh, The ESV says Sardius, the NASB says uh, Ruby, and the NIV says Carnelian. And we don't have time to work through all the lists this morning, but the point I'm making is that the lists of gems here in Revelation is close enough to the one we find in the Old Testament that even with a few discrepancies, which may not even be discrepancies, it just might be that we don't understand what gem they were talking about. We are intended to be reminded of the gems in the breastplate of this priest. These 12 precious stones, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, represented how precious God's people were to him. And because they were part of the high priest's garments, they were continually represented before the Lord whenever the priest would come before God's presence. And in the new Jerusalem, they are continually represented in this eternal city, in the very foundations of the city, because they will abide with God forever. So we have the dimensions of the city and the wall of the city, the unearthly beauty and extravagance of the city, and particularly the precious stones of the city. All of these reminding us of the most holy place. But there are more reasons if we keep reading. Remember what John says in verse 21, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Why is this? Is it just a random feature of this new city? No. You remember at the end of the book of Exodus, when the tabernacle is dedicated, the glory of God, described as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, the cloud comes down and fills that tabernacle and everybody who was a priest had to get out. They could not stand to be in the immediate presence of the manifestation of God's glory, that much glory. God did the same thing in the temple when, he, uh, when, when Solomon dedicated the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. It was this brilliant, shining manifestation of God's presence. That is what is going on here. Only just as everything else is dialed up to unimaginable proportions, so the glory of the immediate presence of God will shine so intensely that even if there were sun or moon, they would not be visible because of the overwhelming power of the light from God and the Lamb. The light is the sheer brilliance of the glory and holiness of God, yet we will be able to stand it we will be able to bask in its presence as God's redeemed ones made holy by Him. Now, not only do you have here the glory of the presence of God, we also find what the holy place is designed to do all along. That is, draw all people from the world to worship God. The Old Testament prophets promised this: that one day all the people of the earth, they'll grab onto the robe of a Jew And they'll say, take us up to see your God. The temple was meant to do this in the millennium. And God's holy city, Jerusalem, will do this as well. Because verse 24 continues, by its light, the light of the city filled with the glory of God, will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. So it won't be shut by day. We could say day or night, but there's no night anymore. So we have to say they will never be shut. John probably is going to make this expression night and day like he normally does, but he's like, wait a minute, there's no night anymore. What do I say now? They won't be shut by day. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. This verse describes a new earth in which all of the peoples of the world will have continual access to the presence of God. I think that kings are emphasized here because in much of the book of Revelation, the kings of the earth were going after the beast and worshiping him and serving him, remember? The beast and the false prophet. But these kings here are now redeemed by the blood of the lamb and they worship and serve God and the lamb alongside all of the people over whom they used to rule forever and ever. And finally, John says in verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And I think that's the final big idea here which points us to this is a holy place because nothing clean is there, nothing, nothing sinful is there. It emphasizes the holiness of that city and the fact that no one can enter it on his or her own. The only reason any of us would have a right to be there is because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, which is a book we've seen of those who have embraced Jesus Christ and he has died for them and they are going to live with him forever. In the original tabernacle and temple, you could not approach the symbols of God's presence without a sacrifice. That is why when you walked into the courtyard, the first thing you would encounter is the altar of sacrifice. But Jesus, the lamb, became our once and for all sacrifice that makes us worthy. To enter this city. And we can be there, as Asanga says, for 10,000 years. We can be there for 10 million years. And it is still not going to be anything of ourselves that gives us the right to be there. It's going to be what Jesus Christ has done for us forever that gives us the right to be there. The Lord's prophets in the Old Testament glimpsed the city from way off. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 3. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the ark of the covenant. Everything was about the ark of the covenant. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. And before him, Isaiah wrote, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. You see here how this city is comparable to the ultimate, most Holy place. Its cubical dimensions, its walls and gates, the significance of the extravagant materials it is made of, its precious stones, its shining presence of God and the Lamb, the streaming in of all the people of the earth to worship here, and the holiness of those who enter because of the Lamb. And there's much more, obviously, we could be saying about these verses, but I want to take you back for just a second to my thesis of this whole section. The Lord is revealing this final scene to us here so that we might prepare ourselves to live over there. If the new Jerusalem as the Lamb's bride encourages us to take our communion with God seriously, then the new Jerusalem as the most holy place encourages us to take our holiness seriously seriously. When we read this text about this place that is beyond our ability to imagine fully and realize how holy it is, I I don't know about you, but I think it should cause all of us to realize how unworthy we are to even be there. Can you imagine walking up to this city and thinking, okay, you guys go ahead, but I do not feel that I can enter. And we are unworthy to enter, but for what Christ has done for us. The Old Testament believers, as righteously as many of them tried to live, were not even allowed to be in the holy place, much less, much less the most holy place. And that was merely a symbol or a partial manifestation of the divine presence. But we have full access to the very presence of God in this city, walking in unspeakable splendor and beauty and glory. And if that is our ultimate dwelling place, if we know that that is where we're actually going to be forever, how should we live now? I don't know how you feel about the word holiness. Because for a lot of people today, a lot of believers, holiness is not really taken as seriously as it should be. Holiness is thought of as the sad list of things I can't do. And holy people are the kind that look down on everyone else. That's what we think about holiness. That is not how the Bible describes holiness. As a believer in Christ, we know that without being holy, we will never see the Lord. We can never enter the new earth or the new Jerusalem. Does this description of Revelation 21 of the glorious holiness and presence of God sound sad to anyone? The passage shows us that holiness is beautiful. Holiness is joyful. Holiness is life. David prayed in Psalm 27, one thing, one thing I have asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 96.6 says, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary, and certainly strength and beauty are in his new Jerusalem. Holiness is keeping our lives free from what was listed in verse 27, which is uncleanness and what is detestable and what is false. Well, at the same time, holiness is living a kind of life that is pleasing to the Lamb with whom we will live with forever. And if you claim to be a believer in Christ, and yet you are allowing sin to exist in your life unconfessed, unchecked, it's like you don't even care. You have no concern then I would tell you lovingly today, you need to consider the possibility that you may not truly be a child of God, that this forever place in Revelation does not describe your ultimate homeland, a place of eternal life and joy and peace, but the lake of fire, the place of eternal death and sorrow. I cannot say, and I I never would say to somebody, I know you are not a believer. That's between you and God. But we should, as believing people, be able to look at one another and be discerning enough to say, I don't think you have a right at this moment to think you are a believer. You need to trust Christ. You need to embrace the gospel and come to him. But if you know the Lord, he wants you this morning to get a small glimpse of this incredible new place where we will dwell with him forever so that we are encouraged to have hope in this life and to be holy in this life. We are going to a holy city because our Lord God is there. Let's live as if we belong there through faith, by God's grace. Ask the Lord, what do I need to cast aside in my life that doesn't belong in that place? Because then it doesn't belong in my life. Because we have already been cleansed through the blood of the lamb and through his strength. Let's continue to pray that this internal change will continually bear fruit in our lives, showing that we have this wonderful hope of being together someday in God's splendor of glory. Father, thank you.